Well, good morning. It's great to see you on this chilly day. So, verse from Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And this morning I'm going to use as our prayer for approach a very ancient prayer. Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may of thee be plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We read first from Psalm 46, which is page 564 of the Old Testament. God is our shelter and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not be afraid, even if the earth is shaken and mountains fall into the ocean depths, even if the seas roar and rage and the hills are shaken by the violence. There is a river that brings joy to the city of God to the sacred house of the Most High. God is in that city, and it will never be destroyed. At early dawn, he will come to its aid. Nations are terrified. Kingdoms are shaken. God thunders, and the earth dissolves. The Lord Almighty is with us, The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come and see what the Lord has done. See what amazing things he has done on earth. He stops wars all over the world. He breaks bows, destroys spears, and sets shields on fire. Stop fighting, he says. And know that I am God, supreme among the nations, supreme over the world. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And Luke chapter 23 from verse 32. That's page 113. Chapter 23, from verse 32. Two other men, both of them criminals, were also led out to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there, and the two criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. They divided his clothes among themselves by throwing dice. The people stood there watching while the Jewish leaders jeered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah whom God has chosen. 
The soldiers also mocked him. They came up to him and offered him cheap wine and said, Save yourself if you are the king of the Jews. Above him were written these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other one, however, rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? You received the same sentence he did. Ours, however, is only right, because we are getting what we deserve for what we did. But he has done no wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me, Jesus, when you come as king. Jesus said to him, I promise you that today you will be in paradise with me. Well, I always uh, look forward to my visits here and uh, look forward to receiving my assignment from Anne in advance. And it's a good discipline to have to work to a set theme or a text, and I welcome that. So my mission this time, um, should I choose to accept it, was just three words, Christ the King. So I was intrigued. And on perusing the lectionary, I discovered that this Sunday is indeed the solemn yet joyous feast of Christ the King. Now, Martin and I worshipped in Anglican churches for many, many years, and I don't have any memory of ever observing this particular date in the calendar. Um, But it's actually the last Sunday of the liturgical year. So if we're working in that liturgical framework, it's quite an important moment. It's the sense of something ending and something else about to begin. It's like a liminal time, a time for opportunity. And apparently this feast uh, was first brought in to the Catholic Church by Pope Pius XI in 1925. And he introduced this feast uh, in response to growing nationalism and secularism, which was interesting. And any cooks among you might know this Sunday by a slightly different name. Today is Stir Up Sunday. Um, I don't know if you knew that. It's the day when you might start thinking about giving your Christmas pudding a bit of TLC, mixing up the fruit or soaking it in whatever concoction you like to soak it in. Um, Today is the day. Now, I myself prefer to make a very light Jamie Oliver pudding, and I don't do that until the 23rd of December. But today is Stir Up Sunday. Um, And that name, Stir Up Sunday, comes from that prayer that I used earlier, that collect, uh, and it expresses the desire that God would stir up the hearts of his people and motivate us towards more passionate discipleship and greater fruitfulness. So I suppose my prayer for today uh, is that we will be stirred or even shaken, if necessary, as we explore what it means for Christ to be king. Now, I've chosen the gospel reading for today and uh, confession. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, 
among the Gospels, because they're all God's word, and they all teach us about the life and work of Jesus, but Luke really is my favorite. Um, I think I like it because it's got lots of detail in, and it's also very human. It portrays Jesus in this whole series of very life-giving and affirming encounters with ordinary people, often people who are on the margins of society. So Luke 23 takes us to the climax of the gospel narrative, back to that first Good Friday when Jesus has eaten the Last Supper with his disciples. He spent time in prayer on the Mount of Olives. And then we've witnessed Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, and we've seen Jesus arrested, beaten, tried by a kangaroo court. And then the agonizing walk to the appointed place Jesus in front, step by painful step, and Simon of Cyrene behind, carrying the wooden cross on his back, and a crowd of distraught women following afterwards. And it it does seem strange to revisit the crucifixion at this time of year, but this event is decisive and definitive. It's something we should come back to regularly. So let's take a closer look at this passage Well, where are we? We're in Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was probably called that because of the shape of the place. Um, In Latin, the place is called Calvary. And tradition has it set on a hill, although it doesn't actually say that in the Bible. But it probably would have been a visible place so that um, the crucifixions would have been a maximum deterrent to uh, any other would-be criminals there. And here at Golgotha, the soldiers put up three crosses. Nothing new to them, just business as usual, and a very grim business it was too. You know, the crucifixion caused a very slow and agonizing death, and the victim would die primarily of asphyxiation because with their wrenched limbs uh, and the pain and fatigue of that position, they wouldn't be able to draw themselves up to take breath. Um, So Jesus is nailed to this cross in the middle, and on either side of him, two criminals on his right and left. We don't know what their crimes were. Tradition, again, tends to talk about thieves. We don't know that they were thieves, certainly not from Luke's account. Um, The word that's used to describe them is just the word for an evildoer, a lawbreaker. But the fact that they were crucified suggests that the Romans probably thought they were a threat to the state. These were maybe dangerous, violent men. And at this point, the spotlight shines on Jesus as he speaks one of his very short uh, speeches. Sometimes we call them last words from the cross. In all his pain and confusion, he's not lost connection to his heavenly father. And he calls upon him now, not for rescue, but for forgiveness for those who are carrying out his execution. He could have called down a curse or a judgment against them, but he chooses a different way. And then the focus shifts away from Jesus and the criminals and down onto the crowd below. And there seem to be three different groups going on. There's the people, the onlookers, the bystanders, general public, and they're just standing there watching In Luke's version, they they don't do anything particular. We don't know whether they approved of the crucifixions, whether they come just for something to do, maybe to look like good citizens in Rome, 
Or maybe they did have a personal connection to one of the condemned men. We don't know. And then there are the rulers there, sneering or jeering. Uh, maybe they enjoyed the sense of power, the sense of satisfaction in the system working just as they designed it. Perhaps this was even entertainment to them. And there's this kind of dark humor as they mock Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, Messiah. They bandy about these titles as if it's all a huge joke. Because from their current perspective, Jesus doesn't look very anointed or chosen. He just looks like another troublesome individual crushed by the Roman machine. Their assumption about Messiah is that he would be a hero, able to save himself from suffering and death. I think they've forgotten about Isaiah's portrait of the Messiah as the suffering servant of God. And you know, Jesus has met that big if question before when he was in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, said the tempter, test God, save yourself, take the kingdom of the world by force, take control of the situation is the temptation. And it's the soldiers who are the most active here. They're not exactly acting like detached professionals. Jesus hangs there, stripped of all dignity, and the soldiers are playing dice for his clothes. They're trying to make a fast buck on the side, I suppose, get something out of it. And then they add insult to injury by mocking Jesus. They offer him the sour wine, the poor, uh, the drink of the poor. It's like a parody of being a royal cupbearer. They take the cup, but it's not the royal wine they're giving him. It's um, a cheap imitation. And they speak in mocking tones about his being the king of the Jews. And they write this like an ironic criminal charge on the notice that would be uh, put up above the cross. And of course, when they write that he's the king... They're speaking a lot truer than they realize. This is a true king and savior, but the soldiers have a very limited view of what royalty and what salvation look like. They're thinking of riches, domination, creature comforts, and ultimate powers of self-preservation. So when confronted with Jesus, wounded, vulnerable, exposed, that idea of Jesus' kingship seems somehow laughable. But the scene ends back at cross-level with this encounter between the three dying men. The first criminal has nothing but insults for Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebukes him. He sees that insults are not appropriate for their situation. They have committed crimes and been found guilty. Their punishment is straightforward justice. And it has the word crema. They are under the same crema. This word can mean sentence or judgment. They're under the same sentence. They're under the same judgment. They're getting what they deserve. So the right response is for them to reflect on what they've done, to express remorse. They should fear God, who is the judge of all. So the contrast between their path to the cross and Jesus's is very stark. And this second criminal is convinced of Jesus' innocence. Jesus has done nothing wrong, but he's dying a violent death. And yet, instead of returning insult for insult, venting his rage and bitterness like the first criminal is doing, 
on Jesus' lips, there has only been this prayer for forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the second criminal speaks to Jesus with respect, with humility, maybe even penitence, maybe faith. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Later on, we're going to sing those words together. It will be a reflection, a prayer, and a response for us, an acknowledgement that Jesus is king. And it's quite interesting that the man uses that personal name, Jesus, because in Luke, the people who call Jesus Jesus are most uh, most often those who need healing or deliverance. Jesus means the Lord saves. And Jesus' last words in this scene are that wonderful affirmation to a dying and desperate man. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. No doubt, no conditions. This man's humble approach to Jesus and the attitude of his heart at this very solemn moment seem to be sufficient. He is assured of a place in paradise. And some scholars say this was the garden, paradise was the garden where the dead would rest until Jesus renews heaven and earth. Some people see it as the renewed creation itself. It's not quite certain. So Jesus is sneered at for a failure to save himself, but here he is performing an act of salvation for this one man. He's been saluted sarcastically as a false king, But Jesus is here issuing a royal pardon to this outsider. And this broken individual is the first one to recognize that Jesus' death is not a contradiction of his messiahship. It's the prelude to his enthronement and his kingly rule. And his request, remember me, is a phrase that's addressed to God, to Yahweh, many times in the Old Testament And God's memory is not passive, but active. To be remembered by God is to be assured of a place in his kingdom and covenant. And as that scene fades away, Luke takes us to that poignant moment when Jesus breathes his last. Crucifixion is followed by burial, and then by resurrection and ascension. And in Luke, worship and joy have the final word. So we have here a king who's been dismissed as a public joke, but who conducts himself with royal grace. We have a saviour who fails to rescue himself, seemingly, from pain and death, but he holds out the promise of paradise to an unlikely candidate. So what do we make of all this? How do we understand the kingship of Jesus? Well, on a technical level... Uh, we've arrived at a doctrine known as session. It's not a word we use much, um, but it is the term, it's the Latin term, sessio, means sitting. And it refers to Jesus' reigning in heavenly session, uh, in glory, prior to his coming again, but following his ascension. Uh, So as king, we see him finally victorious over his enemies, And we see him too as priest serving his father forever. And we catch a little preview of this heavenly session in a little Psalm 110, which is often talked about in the New Testament. It's referred to in Matthew and in Acts and uh, more than once in Hebrews. 
But we see it elsewhere in the New Testament too. We see Ephesians 1, Jesus seated in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. Well, that sounds pretty comprehensive to me. That makes our earthly notions of kingship sound a bit pathetic, a bit transient. You know, the Romans thought they could define people by putting up a poster on a wooden cross and by taking away people's clothes and dignity. The Jews thought they could define Messiah in political terms, someone who would show up, start a revolution, rescue them from the occupying force. But Jesus resists these definitions. His saving activity and his kingly rule are much bigger than that. They encompass the past and the present and the future. And they trump the claims of every earthly ruler and even the angelic hosts. Colossians 1 as well talks about Jesus' blood being shed on the cross and through that, God reconciling all things to himself, things on earth and in heaven. It's a cosmic reconciliation by Christ the King whose sacrifice has brokered an impossible peace in ways that we will never really understand. And of course, the Bible closes with the pictures of Jesus in Revelation, the lamb enthroned, surrounded by the crowds of worshippers who cast down their own crowns in devotion to the one who deserves all honor and glory and power. So Christ the King shines out um, in undisputed splendor from our Bibles So Jesus is king in a theological sense. It's an appropriate title for his divinity and his exalted position. But it still all seems a bit abstract. In what sense is he king in this world? What kind of a kingdom are we talking about? Well, Jesus talked about the kingdom right from the beginning of his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we see him in the synagogue uh, teaching from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The message of the kingdom is that God is at work, as he always has been, but now in greater fullness and in a more accessible way through Jesus I'm taking an extra module at the college just now. They they haven't quite got rid of me yet. Um, And I've been doing an Old Testament module, and we've been rereading not quite all of it, but large, large chunks of the Old Testament. And it's good to do that because you get a sense of God's overarching purpose and his concern for justice and righteousness, um, and also this story of salvation that is there for all who will receive and respond. You know, salvation is a many-layered thing, and Jesus chooses these verses from Isaiah as his snapshot of what salvation looks like. It looks like freedom and liberation. It looks like the good news of God's favor. And we see him, and that scene at the cross, we see him demonstrate it. Salvation looks like a confident assurance made to a broken criminal. It looks like an invitation and a promise of welcome. It sounds like a prayer for forgiveness for your enemies instead of cursing and mockery. 
and it looks like extreme vulnerability made possible only by absolute trust in the goodness and wisdom of the Father. It looks like innocence ignored, but finally vindicated, like peace forfeited for a moment, but then multiplied abundantly. This is the king showing us what the kingdom looks like. It's unexpected, even unorthodox. So Jesus is king. It's theologically true. It's an eternal reality in the heavenly realms. And here on earth, that kingdom has been inaugurated. The seed has been planted. The kingdom is very near us. And it becomes a present reality to the extent that we honor the kingship of Jesus and to the extent that we cooperate with his manifesto. Now, I did find it difficult, really, to know where to go with this text and this theme, how to bring it closer to our daily lives, because it can seem a bit ethereal, really. But as I looked at this passage, I thought about Jesus coming as prophet, priest, and king into a cynical world. Now, the people here, they're very passive, they're very laissez-faire. You've got the mocking uh, soldiers, you've got sneering rulers, These people know nothing about kingdom values, but in Jesus, we hear the language of prayer and promise. And we too are kingdom people in a cynical world. And I had two particular strands of thought that came to me as I was reflecting on this passage. I hope you don't find them too random. This is how my brain works. But the first one was this. It was about the nature of the gospel. And over the last year or two, Everywhere I go, I keep coming across this question, what is the gospel? I've seen it bouncing around blogs. I've seen it dissected in magazine articles. I think it even aired at Baptist Assembly at one point. Now, I've been a Christian for 27 years, and I've never been asked this question before, or not as such, and certainly not with such frequency. What on earth is going on? After 2,000 years of preaching and living out the gospel, suddenly we've forgotten what gospel is. And I'll be honest with you, the question leaves a bit of a sour taste in my mouth because I suspect that what's driving that question is mutual suspicion and hostility. It's that worldly cynicism that we've allowed to infiltrate the church. You know, there's a world of need out there a world of people who are poor, blind, oppressed in every sense. And here are the Christians squabbling about semantics like the soldiers on the ground throwing dice for a dying man's shirt while history is getting changed right above their heads. Now, the argument appears to fall into two camps. There is one camp that maintains that gospel is all about John 3.16. I am sure many of you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Of course this is gospel. Gospel is good news. It's great news to be loved by God. Wonderful news that God didn't abandon us to our own devices but came to us in Jesus. He experienced all our mess and pain. He drank that cup to the dregs and somehow absorbed and defeated all that negativity through his sacrificial death. 
So the news that, like that penitent criminal, we can receive a welcome in paradise in spite of our deeds against God and each other, that's news that brings us joy beyond measure. But there is another camp, or rather, there is a perception somewhere that there is another camp, which maintains that gospel is about Luke 4. Gospel is about the kingdom of God being near. It's about transformation in the lives of the poor and releasing the oppressed, making a difference in the world. Of course, this too is gospel. It's what Jesus never tired of preaching. Great news that God sees the plight of those who suffer. Fantastic news that he's raising up a movement to demonstrate that God is for these people and he's for raising them to fullness of life. But why do we have to separate these two ideas. How can we demonstrate our personal allegiance to the king if we don't join in the work of his kingdom? And how can we claim to release the oppressed if we don't care about the whole person? If we don't see that one of their deepest needs is to be released from the tyranny of their own self-focus and to discover the joy of knowing there's a God who loves them and who laid down his life for them. Surely our gospel must be both and, not either or. Now, this is veering dangerously close to a rant, um, but it's something that has been really bothering me. We need to stop arguing about what is the gospel and about who is the real Christian, because these arguments are taking energy away from our mission and our ministry, our proclamation of God's truth and our participation in the good works he's prepared for us. And there's another thing that has been bothering me on a very personal level, and in my mind, it does follow on. Because if we decide that following the king means not only receiving our own salvation, but caring about others and joining in the holistic work of the kingdom, we soon hit a problem, because our resources are finite, Each of us only has so much time, so much energy, so much money, so many material resources, so many skills and spiritual gifts. There is only so much that we can give and we can burn out in all kinds of ways. And it's been on my mind this issue that people sometimes call compassion fatigue. Perhaps not fatigue exactly, but a paralysis that comes from feeling overwhelmed. I don't know if it's just me, but there seem to be so many needs just now, Um, so many requests for help. We've got on our TV screens images of the devastation caused by Typhoon Haiyan. We had desperate stories broadcast for children in need um, the other week, young people struggling with debilitating illness, with bullying, with bereavement, all kinds of things. I've had letters through the door with appeals from City Mission, from uh, Tear Fund. I've been stopped by people in Glasgow wanting donations for Red Cross and for shelter. You know, we are not bottomless pits. And I really struggled a few weeks ago. I had a phone call from Christian Aid. Now, we have been giving a small monthly gift to Christian Aid for years. Um, I've been involved in the local collections in Cooper for Christian Aid Week. I support what they do. But I had to tell this guy I couldn't afford to give any extra. And he stuck to his script. Perhaps you could give £8 extra a month. Perhaps you could give just £4 extra a month. 
perhaps just two pounds. And I stuck to my script. Well, you know, I'm not working just now. We're already giving what we feel we can. We've got other causes we want to support. And I felt horrible. I don't know if you've had a similar experience. Now, of course, we need to guard against the cynicism and the hardness that can creep into our hearts that can turn us inward, um, away from the hurting and the vulnerable, whose problems we can't solve with a magic wand. We do need the saving love and the kingdom hope of Jesus to get a hold on us. But we also need to remember, this is a movement. We're in this together. And we do well to remember that Jesus is a saviour and we are not. We can't bring in the kingdom by force. We can't meet every need. So we need the king to show us where and how he wants to deploy us for his kingdom purposes. And that's going to look different for each individual and for each church. Our job is simply to listen and discern together what those callings might be, which kingdom projects we are called to contribute to just now and when the tidal season seems to be changing to a new work. So here we stand at the end of the liturgical year, worshipping King Jesus, and next week sees the start of Advent, which in ancient times was a season for penitence and fasting, not that you would know it if you go in the shops. Um, But this is a good time to take stock. Let's learn from the humility of the criminal who hung there and asked to be remembered. Let's get back on first-name terms with Jesus if we've been distant. Let's make conversation with him. So hear him invite you to join in his kingdom purposes here and now as the Holy Spirit directs you. And hear him promise you that royal retreat to come. So let's use this season of Advent to recalibrate ourselves as kingdom people in a cynical world. Amen. Let us now pray for ourselves and others. Bountiful Father, who gives us hope and joy and the promise of salvation, Remember us, we pray. We are rapidly approaching one of the happiest festivals in our church year, Christmas, the time when we celebrate the matchless gift you gave to us of our Lord Jesus Christ. For many in this country, it is a time of excessive indulgence and extravagance. Critics say, The true meaning of Christmas is lost, forgotten. But is it? In the last few weeks, the people of the Philippines suffered a great disaster which left many bereaved, mourning, sick, hungry, and homeless. They must have thought themselves forgotten. And just about the same time, our annual television appeal for children in need aired. All this in a period of economic stringency, when many of our citizens are struggling to heat their homes and provide the expensive Christmas treats their children expect. And yet, and yet... 
those same people rose magnificently to the occasion and opened their hearts and purses and wallets, selflessly pouring out aid for both causes. Remember them, we pray. The people of the Philippines, the suffering needy children of our world, the people who found it in themselves to give so generously to help others. Remember them, we pray. We bow our heads before you on a cold, grey, wintry day. We complain and forget the warm pleasure of summer, which will come again. We forget our climate is such that it promotes growth and plenty, not the extremes of drought and famine. Similarly, our news media seems to forget tragedy, which is no longer fresh. I speak of the continuing agony of the people of Syria. Remember them, we pray, and encourage politicians to continue to give what guidance and assistance they can to that tortured country. Lord, this can be a painful time of our year when we think of those loved ones gone from our sight, now safe in your loving arms. Remember us, Lord, you who know grief for you wept for your sinful people. You who saw your beloved son die a painful death on a cross that those same people might be forgiven and live better lives. Remember us with our little griefs. In this church, led by our minister Katrina, our members try very hard to reach out and help others less fortunate than ourselves, not just in December, but all year. They give of our time, our money, our knowledge, and our loving compassion. Sometimes we grow weary with the effort and wonder if any of it matters, really counts. Strengthen us in those moments, Lord, we pray. Remind us that when the Christmas dinner is served to the eager hands of many who would be otherwise hungry and lonely, you will be there also, sharing in their pleasure. Remember them, Lord, those in our church who care and work for us all, whether it be cooking baking, serving tea, arranging flowers and chairs, preparing and editing our magazine, singing joyous songs, playing beautiful music, planning events to teach children of all ages the story of your abiding, all-encompassing love. Remember them, we pray. Finally, we pray for our visiting preacher, Amanda. Help her when she goes to Calcutta. 
She will see many things which will scar her forever. Help her to rise above that and continue on with the good work. Encourage her in the path she treads towards you. Help her to lead wisely believers along the right road. Remember her, we pray, as we give thanks to all who point us on the way beyond Bethlehem and Calvary. Remember us, Lord. Help us to live every hour of every day remembering you. All this we ask in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now go forth as subjects and servants of King Jesus. Walk with dignity as members of a royal family. Listen to the king's voice and be ready to play your part in the work of the kingdom, spreading his love, truth, justice and righteousness. Go in the name and strength of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm.